Hey there, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of E Pluribus Unum, a podcast attempting to help this country get back to the ideal of out of many one. You know, like true unity. And I believe that unity can only come about when we have open minds, understanding between people, and shared values and goals. So this podcast attempts to open minds and encourage understanding by demystifying the conservative viewpoint, explaining what conservatives believe and think, and the motivations behind our positions, because I believe when people understand where conservatives come from, and also where when conservatives understand truly where people on the left come from, then we can have more productive and open conversations about actual solutions to actual problems. And shared values? Well, there is no better place for values than the Torah or the Bible. So this podcast is as much about political viewpoints as it is about the lessons and wisdom that everyone, Jewish, non-Jewish, believer, non-believer, can learn from the Torah. So we have conversations about culture, God, ideas, a little bit of news, but very, very little. And it's a conversation because ultimately we're all on this journey together to get to this place of unity We all have to work on ourselves and become better people in that journey. So I'm working, you're working. So this is a conversation we're learning together, we're growing together, and I'm so glad to have you with me. Today, we are going to delve into culture because I read a book over the weekend that I really want to share with you because I think it has a lot to teach us. It is a work of fiction. It's called Matched by Ali Condi, and actually it's a young adult book. It's a young adult dystopian novel. For those of you who do not read a lot of young adult novels, you might be unaware that a dystopian future, that's a whole genre in the young adult world. You might be familiar with Hunger Games because that was made into a movie. Maze Runner also became a movie. Divergent, a lot of these young adult dystopian worlds lend themselves to the big screen, so they become movies. But they're more than just big blockbuster hit type stories. In fact, young adult novels seem to be where a lot of the existential questions are asked. I'm a big reader and I enjoy all types of books, fiction and nonfiction. I read young adult. I like me some middle grade, which is like eight to 12 year old books. Some of those books are really funny and very cute. Adult novels too. I'm very into, I guess you'd call it chick lit. I like historical fiction. I like biographies, books that talk about lessons to be learned from the Torah, and all types of books. I'll read almost anything, but I have found that when looking for fiction that deals with existential questions, a lot of that is in young adult. By the time people transition to, I think they now call it early adult, it's a new genre for people who are in their 20s, But once people transition into those books and definitely into adult, a lot of those existential questions don't come up anymore. And it could be that as teenagers, people are more focused on what am I going to do with my life? Where is everything going? They're starting to ask about the world and figure things out. So books reflect that. Whereas by the time people are adults, they're a little bit more mired down in their job and paying rent and their kids and their spouses and the books reflect that. So it might make perfect sense why all of these young adult novels have these existential questions, but they do it really well. And they're not just for young adults, especially the ones that are really well-written. A well-written book can be enjoyed by anyone. But this one really struck me because 
I was so pulled into the world of this story. It was not as large. It wasn't as big as some of the books. Like Hunger Games, which I really enjoyed when I read them, and it has a lot to say about the dangers of an elite class and of the government making decisions and of people not speaking up for what's right. So Hunger Games has a lot to teach, but the setting is so unlike anything that we can relate to. Young kids being chosen to fight to the death to win a competition that it just takes on a different quality that's a little bit harder to relate to and a little bit easier to enjoy as entertainment than as something that has a message to say. This book, because of the setting, it was a little bit smaller in scale. There wasn't really any crazy technology. There wasn't anything so large that it felt unreal. So it was very easy to get sucked into this book and to contemplate the consequences of a world like this one. So I'm going to read to you the blurb from the back of the book and then talk about it in a little bit more detail. But I just want you to basically understand the plot of the book. In the society, capital S, officials decide who you love, where you work, when you die. Cassia has always trusted their choices. It's hardly any price to pay for a long life, the perfect job, the ideal mate. So when her best friend appears on the matching screen, Cassia knows with complete certainty that he is the one until she sees another face flash for an instant before the screen fades to black. Now Cassia is faced with impossible choices, between Xander and Kai, between the life she's known and a path no one else has ever dared follow, between perfection and passion. Cassia is the main girl. She's 17. She lives in a world. She lives in a country. It's not totally clear where it is. It's probably set in the United States. That is dictated by the society, and society is with a capital S. The society decides everything that happens in this world, and they make their choices based upon probability and statistics and reason. So the matching, which is how spouses are decided, people don't choose their own spouses, the society chooses it for them, they make the decisions based upon who has an ideal genetic match and what personalities will best mix together. So they're just making choices based upon numbers. Everything is numbers and reason and statistics and probability. So they use reason and probability to make the decisions, and then they're guided by principles of equality and fairness and safety. And those words come up fairly frequently in the book, and they usually describe why the government or why the society is doing something. For instance, each person was allowed to own an artifact, which was something from the time before. For instance, Cassia owns a makeup compact that belonged to her great-grandmother. But then the society and the government decide that people aren't allowed to have artifacts anymore because it promotes inequality because not everyone has a compact. So this is the world that she's living in. The people in the society are split into different ranks. At the top are the officers and the officials. They're the ones implementing the decisions and possibly making them. We hear vaguely about the government, but we don't know exactly how the governments run. And this is a trilogy, so it's very likely that the inner workings of the government are explained in the other two books, but I haven't read those. So at the top, let's say vaguely there's the government, then beneath that is the officers and the officials, then you have everyday citizens like Cassia and her family. Then there are the aberrations, who are people who have committed certain infractions, so they're allowed to exist within society, but they have certain regulations put on them. For example, they're never allowed to be matched. So they're never allowed to get married or reproduce. They have to stay single their whole lives. Not every job 
is open to an aberration. They're forced usually into more menial jobs and then anomalies who are totally on the outskirts of society. One of the important plot points of the book is that Cassia falls in love with this boy, Kai, who's an aberration. According to the rules of society, they can never be together because he's not allowed to be together because the matching isn't just about putting ideal personalities together. It's about putting ideal genes together. There's a little bit of a survival of the fittest thing going on and only certain genes are allowed to reproduce. It is hinted at that certain diseases have been gotten rid of through this process, but nonetheless, mostly, at least in this case, being an aberration has less to do with Kai's genetic predisposition to, say, high cholesterol than it does to the fact that his family rebelled against the government and therefore they don't, the government isn't trying to breed more rebellious people. So everything in this world, in this society, is structured. There's the hierarchy of people. Everything done throughout the people's days are similarly structured, again, based upon probability and reason and statistics. I'm just going to give you a brief list of some of the details that we get to know about how these people's lives are run. So food is delivered at specific mealtimes. So there's breakfast time, lunchtime, and evening time. Food can only be eaten in certain areas. So people can eat at home or people can eat at work, or people can eat at school. Every once in a while, there's a special banquet hosted by the government or a government-sponsored picnic, and people can eat outside, but generally food is eaten in very specific places because each person's meal is delivered at those exact mealtimes in a foil container, and each container is specifically portioned to each person's nutrient requirements. So people don't cook. Number one, people don't cook in their homes. There's not choice in food. You're given what the government gives you because you're eating to survive. You're eating for nutrients. You're not eating because you enjoy eating or because you want to try something new. You're eating just to live. Clothing is of three types. Civilians wear brown plain clothes. That's it all the time. They have plain clothes and pajamas. Blue is for employees. So when you're at work, you change to your blue clothes. And then white is for officials. At special ceremonies, people borrow clothing from the government and they get to wear, Cassia wears a green dress to her matching banquet, but just on loan. And then she has to return it. Otherwise, all of her clothing is brown. It's not specifically mentioned, but it doesn't seem like these people own very much. They own their clothes and their undergarments, probably a toothbrush and a toothpaste. I can't imagine that they use makeup or styling gel or any other jewelry or accessories. So it's very basic and plain. Everything is optimal for a step above survival. Technically, they have a good life, but everything is just what's necessary. People are placed in their homes and neighborhoods. People don't get to choose where to move. People don't know how to write with pen or paper. They only know how to type. There's no running allowed outside. People are not allowed to go into other people's homes. They can only talk outside on the stoop. People can't have children after the age of 31. So the last time a woman can get pregnant or give birth is just before age 31. After that, no more. They don't explain whether it's birth control or if they get tubes tied or anything like that, but no children after the age of 31 because after that, pregnancies get more dangerous and there's no danger to the society. Plants are only planted for efficiency, not beauty. So plants that produce fruit or can be used for fuel, but not plants that just look pretty. Some things survived from the before times and the society made choices 
about what will continue, but in very limited numbers. So for example, there are the 100 poems, 100 songs, 100 books, 100 history lessons, some panel decided what was best to keep, and everything else is destroyed. Cassia, for instance, becomes really interested in poetry, and she, her grandfather secretly shares a Dylan Thomas and a Tennyson poem with her that are not part of the 100 poems. There's not a lot kept from the past, and there's frequent mention made of the fact that people don't really care about history. One of the few things that people did have from the past were these artifacts like Cassia's Compact, but then, again, those are confiscated because it promotes inequality. Old people die exactly at 80. We see Cassia at her grandfather's 80th birthday, and it's a final meal, and he gets to eat whatever he wants. He can finally choose his food, but then before midnight on his 80th birthday, he dies. And that's true for everyone in this society. And then every person in this society carries around this little case of three pills. There's a blue pill, which if taken will allow a person to survive as long as they have a water source for a number of days or perhaps a number of weeks, because there's still an understanding that as perfect as the society is, nature can still get in the way. There's a green pill which calms people down so if people are anxious or having a panic attack they can take this green pill but if they take more than one green pill in a week then the government is going to start asking questions and then a red pill which no one is allowed to take unless dictated to by an official though we do learn later in the book that the red pill erases memory so this is the world that cassie is living in this is the world of matched and the reason i thought it would be important to talk about and the reason I wanted to share it with you is because I think it brings up this important discussion of the difference or of the important balance between safety and freedom. It is mentioned in the book that choice is dangerous. In fact, one of the reasons the society formed is because in the days before the society, technology had advanced to the point that people had too many choices. So the society decided, or the government decided people have too many choices, we're going to have to limit it. Cassia's choices in the book often come down to choosing between her safety and the safety of her parents and her brother and the promise of this perfect life and freedom to choose to be with the boy she loves. And the promise of the society is a completely perfect, ideal kind of life. You get matched with your perfect mate. You have a job perfectly suited for your skills. You have a home where you have everything you need. The government will keep you safe and healthy until you're 80 years old, so you're promised pretty long life. You have recreation opportunities, not a ton of choices, but they do exist, so it's safe. You have, theoretically, everything you could want, except for choice. And that's true in our lives, too. We have a choice between safety and freedom. They are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but they can be. For us, what we have to do as individuals and also as a society is figure out what that balance is. And not everyone has the same idea about what that balance is, of course. That is the tightrope that we walk as a society the, between freedom and safety. And along with safety also falls fairness and equality. As mentioned in the book, those are also ideals of the society, but fairness and equality can be counter to freedom. If we're talking about equality in terms of result and not equality in terms of opportunity, because to have equal opportunity, 
we need complete freedom. For example, jobs all say that they're an equal opportunity employer. Well, they can only be equal opportunity employers if they're able to hire whomever they choose. But if there are rules about who they have to hire or who they can't hire, then they're actually not an equal opportunity employer because some people have a better opportunity or better chance of being hired. Equality of outcome and safety are often the enemies of freedom. As as Benjamin Franklin said, and is often quoted, quote, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety, unquote. And it's very important that he says essential liberty and temporary safety. I had this conversation recently with my husband, and I was asking about going into an airport and going through all the security checks. In a way, aren't we giving up our liberty when we go through those security checkpoints and they rifle through our bags or wave a wand over our body to see if we're carrying anything on our person. And of course, there's the fact that flying is a choice. When you elect to engage in certain activities, then you also have to go along with those specific rules. If you don't want to have your bag rifled through, then don't fly. But if you're going to fly, then your bag is going to be searched. So sometimes we electively get ourselves in situations where we have to provide certain information, maybe give up liberty. But that's a temporary liberty, not an essential liberty. So it is a little bit of a different situation. But we give up liberty in a lot of ways. And I think this conversation about safety versus freedom is relevant to all of us all the time, but especially living during the times of COVID and all of the extra regulations that we have had to put up with, like wearing masks, keeping six feet of distance, having to close down our businesses. These are all things done in the name of safety and not just our safety, but the safety of other people. But we've also given up freedom, freedom to not wear a mask, freedom to be close to people, and also freedom to take risks. It is a freedom to have control over your own life and your own body and to take risks with it. Of course, we've given up control for safety before the pandemic. This is not just about coronavirus. The government decided what is essential work or not essential work. Okay, that one is coronavirus, but I still had to mention that one because is anyone else creeped out by the fact of the government dictating what's essential and what's non-essential? Maybe you're lucky enough to work in an industry that was essential, so you got to keep your job. But what about all the people who weren't marked essential so didn't get to keep their job? And what if in the next pandemic, your job isn't considered essential, so you lose it? I find it very much an overreach that the government gets to decide what's essential. I'll tell you a little secret. Every job is essential to the person who has it. That's essential work for you. But there are other ways we've given up control for safety, and they're not all bad. For instance, there are rules when we drive about how fast we can go or the need to stop at a stop sign or a stoplight. And those rules help us. In fact, I sometimes marvel at how amazing it is that we, as a society and as a culture, because I think it has more to do with our culture than with our government, that we've all decided red means stop, yellow means slow down, green means go, and that we're all going to stick with it. Every once in a while, you get a jerk who thinks he's better than everyone else and runs a red light. But most people follow the rules. And because most people follow the rules, we are able to be on the streets safely. There are things to worry about on the road, but we can at least count on the fact that most people are following the rules so that when we go through a green light, we can be pretty much assured that no one's coming from the opposite direction. That's one of the things that we take totally for granted, but if we stop and took a second to realize how amazing it is that 99% of people 
have agreed to these rules and therefore we can drive safely. That's a pretty incredible society to live in. I think it's actually pretty indicative of the kind of society that we live in. Anyway, that was just a little sidebar. But the point is, yes, sometimes we give up our liberty. We don't get to totally choose how to drive. There are rules and laws that keep us and everyone around us safe. As libertarian as I am, I also recognize that there are laws that are good and there are times when we we make a pact with the government. We get a little bit of safety from them because otherwise the country wouldn't run. There have to be agreed upon rules because things have to work in certain expected ways. If things are unexpected all the time, we wouldn't be able to start businesses or start families because we would always be worried about our very survival and about where our money's coming from and where food is coming from. So there are good laws, of course. There are times that safety should be the priority. But I think what this book reminds us is that we have to make those choices carefully and not so easily go along with something that the government says will keep us safe in exchange for our liberty. Because this society of the book matched didn't happen overnight. It's not totally clear what happened, which is pretty typical for young adult dystopian novels. Every once in a while, it's very clear about why we have this new dystopian world as opposed to the old one. There might have been a cataclysmic natural event or a big civil war or something like that. But often it's just, there were problems and now we're here. This book falls a little bit more in that category. There were problems. She vaguely alludes to global warming the technology thing. So there are a few problems. And then here we are. So we don't know exactly how we got here. But since it doesn't mention a huge civil war, it seems to be that it was a slow transition. Bit by bit by bit, the government took power, people gave them power. And here we are at this society. That thesis is supported by the fact that the officials don't carry any weapons on them. They don't need them because people are so cowed into fear of the government, they don't want to risk their perfect lives, they don't want to risk becoming an aberration or an anomaly, getting an infraction, the government doesn't need weapons. They have scared the people into submission, but they used to have weapons. And then slowly they chipped away at people. So it's a slow process. So I'm not saying we're living in dystopia. I'm not even saying that we're getting there. I don't like the pundits that say on either side, whether it's if people don't stop using cars, then global warming is going to cause the world to explode. Or the people who say that if we give the government control now, then tomorrow they're going to be telling us everything, when to sleep, when to eat, when to die, and we'll never get to make a choice again. Those people peddle fear and anger. I don't want to peddle fear or anger. I don't think either fear or anger is constructive on a global scale or even personally. If you live in fear or with anger burning inside you all the time, you're going to be sad. And that's not my goal. My goal is to make you happier. So I'm not saying that we're there. I'm not even saying that we're getting to a society like the one in this book. What I am saying is that we need to be aware of what our choices can lead to and how important our choices can be, that freedom and safety are balance. We can't do everything in terms of safety and equality as the left might want because then we don't have choice. And I am sure that most of you listening like to have the choice about what you eat who your romantic partner is, what job you have, where you want to live. We like choice. And then those of us on the right have to realize that some rules for safety, like traffic lights, are good. So there is a balance. It's about finding that balance. The one other thing that struck me in this world that I wanted to talk about, because I think it's also very relevant, is in this world, 
people are not interested in history. They have the 100 history lessons, just like they have the 100 songs and the 100 poems. We don't get a list of the 100 songs or the 100 poems, though we do learn at one point that even the 100 songs are all auto-tuned or generated voices. So maybe Aretha's respect is on the list, but it's not even really Aretha singing because Aretha's voice is not perfect. So everything in this world is very manufactured and fake because it lives up to this statistical ideal. But humans are not statistical ideals. We vary. We have variation, and that's what makes us so beautiful and so interesting. But other than the 100 history lessons, the only other connection to the past is a museum, which nobody visits. The biggest part of the museum is dedicated to a history of the society. So it's very recent history, not old history, which sounds very communist to me you know, a rewriting of history and focusing on the glory of the society, you know, like these to focus on the glory of the USSR, but nothing about what came before. And I'm going to sound like an old person when I say this, and I know it's been said before, but it's so true. People today don't really seem to learn history. They don't really seem to understand it or be interested in it. Learning history is so incredibly important. And if we don't learn it, we're nothing. As Dennis Prager likes to point out, you as a person are your memory. If you lose your memory, like completely lose your memory, are you still you? You're still you physically, but are you you if you don't remember your family or your friends or what you like to do or anything about yourself? So same thing. If a country doesn't have a history, are they still that country? And learning history, I've always loved it. So I've never really been able to get into the mind of people who didn't like it in school or think that it's dry. There might be certain area, there might be certain times of history that are more interesting to other people. And there are definitely certain ways of teaching history and learning history that are more interesting. But people who say history isn't interesting, that's, that's a mindset that I do not and cannot understand because it's stories and it's life and it's wisdom and there's everything to be learned in history. And not just on a global scale. Learning history is like learning from our parents or our older siblings. When we learn from our parents and older siblings, number one, we get to learn from their mistakes so we don't have to make the same mistakes. We also learn solutions because they can provide solutions when they were in similar situations. They might or might not always work for us, but at least we have a starting point. We also get the comfort of knowing that we're not the only people to deal with the problems. The first time we realize that our parents also went through heartbreak, when we have our first breakup, when we realize that we're not alone and other people have felt this way, it's so liberating. And on a global scale, it's sort of the same thing. Right now, we feel like we're going through a really difficult time in this country. And then you get to read about Rome and Greece, who also went through really difficult times, which could be depressing because Rome and Greece fell, except if we wanted to, we could learn from them. They've already made the mistakes. We don't have to make the same mistakes. We can see what they did and try to find alternative solutions. Learning history is like a guidebook. To not be interested in that guidebook honestly boggles me. I truly don't understand that. Another cool thing about learning history is that it lets us understand humanity more fully. Think about when you did learn about your parents' first heartbreak and you realized that they loved someone before they loved your other parent. Or when your parents tell you the first time that they got in trouble at school or got a parking ticket 
or the first time that they got a raise at work. Whatever the thing is, you start to see your parents as more fully rounded, as real people. And it's the same thing when we learn history. The Civil War took place from 1861 to 1865. Those are dates. It's important to know those dates. Knowing dates of things allows you to see what came first and what came after and what might have affected things. But the interesting thing is not the dates. The interesting thing is what led up to it and what came afterwards. Who were the heroes and who were the villains and who were the villains but who later had a comeback and who were the heroes but fell? You get to see all sides of people and learn learn the full tapestry of humanity when you learn history. And as said before, if we don't have our history, who are we? There's no way to prove definitively why Jews still exist. Jews are a very tiny minority. I know it seems like Jews are everywhere, but we're really like 0.01% of the world's population. Jews are about 2 to 3% of the US population. Very, very small. People have tried to kill us in every country, at every different era in history. The fact that we still exist from one perspective is miraculous or just inexplicable. And there are many different explanations offered, but one of them is that we connect to our history. We study our history at least every Shabbos when we read the Torah, but more often than that, because people are learning it in school and people know the stories, we have a connection to something. And that has kept us alive. Whereas other groups, Jebusites and the Hittites and all the other groups, they don't exist anymore. But the Jews do because we have keep to our history. So history is important. But of course, in the world of matched, they don't really want people to learn history because if people knew what had happened before, they might want to go back to when they could make their own choices. Because making your own choices about life is one of the things that makes life great. Even if sometimes then we make choices that are bad for us in the short run, like eating that second piece of chocolate cake that we know we shouldn't have had, or choosing to smoke, which might, God forbid, give someone lung cancer. There are all sorts of choices we can make that are dangerous. We aren't alive if we aren't making choices. We can program robots to do things. Animals do things by instinct. What makes us human is our ability to make choices, sometimes the wrong ones, hopefully more often the right ones. And I hope today you make the choice to be a little kinder than necessary. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to E Pluribus Unum. I hope today's episode made you think or brought some clarity and positivity to your day. Subscribe to the show to always get the most recent episode directly to your device. Please leave a rating and a review and share the show with your family, friends, or anyone you think might benefit from a little Torah wisdom and conservative thoughts. For more of my thoughts and ideas I share from others, please follow me on Instagram at conservativejewishfemale or read my blog conservativejewishfemale.blogspot.com. The intro outro music is Chopin's Waterfall Etude. Have a great day!